Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome back, everybody. We're actually on a, on a somewhat normal schedule right now, which is pretty impressive for us. Thanks for joining us on our new episode. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We talked about Watchmen a couple episodes ago, and it kind of stalled out uh, for the last two episodes. We were worried, Robbie, about where it was going. It seemed like it totally slowed down and just got really odd. The writing got kind of cheesy. But wow, were we blown away by last night's episode. Spoiler alert, the entire fifth episode dives into the story of Looking Glass. Jam-packed, incredible packs a punch just super awesome storytelling and we were completely blown away and it completely made up for the last two episodes and put us back on track baby we're ready to rock yeah it was definitely won over by this episode i was starting to lose a lot of hope in the show um i even went on the struggle session podcast to talk a lot of shit about it um even though i still liked it better <laughs> than jack and leslie um, but uh, yeah, this episode really, I thought it was really mining into some deep areas into the Watchmen comic book lore, because this is based off of the comic book, takes place 30 years after. It's not based off of the movie. And uh, yeah, I was really impressed. I mean, very fascinating episode, and I'm really excited about the next episode as well. And without spoiling anything is really specific it seems like the next episode is actually pulling something from another alan moore comic book uh, a comic book that was also adapted into a movie but had certain things that were so controversial that didn't make it into even that movie that they're sort of inspired by in the next episode of the show which is kind of interesting that they're pulling from other alan moore fiction not just watchmen so i was kind of impressed to see that as well i'm excited about it um, let's let's do this. I mean, there's only uh, three episodes left, really, of the show. I think. Holy! So, wow! Yeah! Wow! And I have to yeah, say, for it's, it's incredible. just just for uh, to be completely fair, uh, one thing that was discussed on struggle session was that apparently the writer of Moonlight was originally part of the writing room for the show, and that he tried to get fired. Because he felt that the, at least what he saw of the show, it had a Blue Lives Matter vibe to him. That was a, I guess that was something that Leslie heard through the grapevine. I haven't seen that reported or anywhere else in any gossip blogs or anything like that. So that, that, that was an interesting thing that he had dropped. I was going to say that is really interesting considering after we did the last episode about this, the subsequent episodes seemed to show the police as just like crazy uh, tortures and shit like they, you know, like interrogations. It almost reminded me of like Abu Ghraib, like using dogs for interrogations. It just kind of looked like a mess. So I felt like that was kind of a preemptive uh, analysis. But yeah, I mean, I guess if the writers said that, then that's a whole other thing. But I, I, I'm surprised to hear that because I thought it actually ended up portraying the police uh, really wickedly as the show went on. The politics of the show, at least what's manifested in the show so far, I don't really have any serious problems with. Um, but I do think it's wise to be concerned moving forward that the creator of the show, Damon Lindelof's politics, are definitely like a lot more milquetoast neoliberal than ours are. And I think that's evident in his interview. So just a little caution moving forward. I think it would be a really tall order to expect any popular fiction in the modern age on TV or anywhere else to have politics 
as deeply subversive as Alan Moore in the end. And I think that if it gets close to that, I'll be happy. But I think that that's a really tall order. I mean, it's arguable that Alan Moore created some of the most challenging, subversive, radical fiction of the modern age in terms of political themes. Um, and I think that would actually be hard to find another author whose work appeared in mainstream culture that has such underlying subversive politics in their own work. And I think that we're just going to have to accept that. It's hard. It's re- There's really no one in society right now who's doing work like that, that's having that much of a, that's touching the mainstream consciousness. So I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that, Abby? Yeah. Let's give a little shout out to Alan Moore because he has commented on kind of the sanitization of his work and just superheroes in general depicted in this century. And, um, you know, it's his birthday today and he's one of the the greatest authors of all time. Yeah. If anybody has a passing interest in, in Alan Moore, I mean, his birthday is today. He's an, he's one of my favorite, you know, artists in a general sense. I wouldn't even really put him in the box of being a writer. Um, I think he's one of the most important artists of all time in my lifetime specifically. And if you have a passing interest in him and you, and you like things like Watchmen or V for Vendetta, I mean, um, definitely don't hesitate to go deeper into his work and check out Swamp Thing. I mean, it's one of the most interesting superhero comics, not can't even really call it a superhero comic, you know, ever made. He also did From Hell, a very fascinating breakdown and sort of reinterpretation, historical retelling of the Jack the Ripper story. Done incredible things. I mean, it's hard to mention all of them. One other one people should check out is Miracle Man, which is similar to Watchmen, but is a completely different sort of version of if superheroes existed in the real world or existed in sort of a grounded reality. Check all those out. Amazing dude. <laughs> and his name is not credited. Yeah. What? Wow. Really? His name is not in the credits for the Watchmen show. You will notice. And his name is names is uh, huh. his name is not in the credits for pretty much any adaptation of his work. He has he does not want to be a part of it. Dave Gibbons, the co-creator mm-hmm. of Watchmen, is a part of the show. He is consultant on it. He's probably gotten a paycheck for it. But Alan Moore has refused. So that's his right. Very interesting. Yeah, and it's not even at this point because of a legal reason why he can't be part of it. It's just that he, like, he's literally been asked to just be a consultant by these showrunners, you know, movie producers, and he declines. So uh, that's what he's chosen to do. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, Can't say I blame him. I mean, the bastardization of his work from a lot of these companies is probably really depressing. And like you said, you do not see political interpretations like the like what he's originally intending with his storylines ever done correctly it's it's completely sanitized uh i just wanted to read half of this really interesting answer that he gave um to an interview i'm not sure how old this is but someone asked him you know what what was the impact of popular heroes comic books in our culture why are people fascinated by these alternative realities And he says, I think the impact of superheroes on popular culture is both tremendously embarrassing and worrying. While these characters were originally perfectly suited to stimulating the imaginations of their 12 or 13-year-old audience, today's franchised uber-mention aimed at supposedly an adult audience seems to be serving some kind of different function and fulfilling different needs. Primarily, mass-market superhero movies seem to be abetting an audience who do not wish to relinquish their grip on A, 
their relatively reassuring childhoods or B, the relatively reassuring 20th century. The continuing popularity of these movies to me suggests some kind of deliberate self-imposed state of emotional arrest combined with a numbing condition of cultural stasis that can be witnessed in comics, movies, popular music, and indeed right across the cultural spectrum. And then um, he just goes on to talk about how these books and iconic characters are still very like reminiscent to white supremacist dreams of a master race. <laughs> just really, really deep thinker, really incredible man. Uh, wow. Happy birthday, Alan Moore. That's uh, that's that cuts through and and kind of makes Martin Scorsese's criticism of superhero movies seem really uh, sloppy. Not saying that Martin Scorsese was wrong, but I mean Alan Moore just like that articulates it so perfectly. Really soul bearing yeah. right there. So I guess the most pressing thing on everyone's minds right now, at least in the news, you know, sensationalist news, is the impeachment hearings which have officially started now. They're having open hearings. I believe the first one was on Wednesday. Um, they had two witnesses on the, th on the second day of the hearings. They had another witness who was an ambassador to Ukraine. So I guess to me, the actual hearings themselves are less interesting than the fact that there's a continuing civil war at Fox News and that shit is just like totally imploding over there. And besides the straight-up opinion shows, um, like Tucker, Judge Janine, Laura Ingram, Mark Levine, Shahanity, almost all the other shows are having like sparring matches in ways that you would you would you would see that back in the day on like older media networks, like even like Crossfire or like the McLaughlin Report. But it's like Fox News has gone back to this sort of like there, there, a lot of people are fighting with each other live on the air now. And I find that very fascinating, highly entertaining, obviously. And then and just talking about the impeachment hearings, I mean, obviously, it's cringeworthy to watch Adam Schiff, who basically made a name for himself by being like the de facto Russiagate, you know, heading the charge on Russiagate. He's leading these hearings. Optically, it looks really bad even to me. I still think this, these impeachment hearings should be going forward. I still think it looks optically terrible to have the guy who was like a Russiagate-obsessed lunatic being in control of these hearings. But at the same time, any Democrat in control of the hearings, the Republicans would find a way to make them look like a lunatic or make them look like they're biased. So ultimately, I guess it doesn't matter if Pelosi was in charge of them. The, the Republicans would say that she was biased or whatever. I mean, so, but I just personally think Adam Schiff is particularly disgusting. Like, I almost hate him more than someone like Pelosi um, because he is so associated with Russiagate. But Abby, there was this hilarious moment actually on Fox News. It wasn't, a, it wasn't that adversarial, it wasn't that aggressive, but I think it's a little insight into what's sort of happening at Fox News, that the facade is sort of hard to keep up. And when I say the facade, I mean just the facade of believing that Trump is not an embarrassing president, <laughs> that he's like that he behaves in an unembarrassing fashion. So, Abby, I want I want you to comment on this little clip here from the Sean Hannity show uh, where Ken Starr comes on to talk about how Trump interrupted the hearings in real time to basically attack the witness um, and, and watch this little clip. Fast forward about a minute in and, and play this. I want to get your reaction. Now, Ken Starr, I've known you a long time. 
You got to help me out here. You got to tell this audience what was so harmful and bad about that, because you didn't make any sense to me today. None whatsoever. <laughs> well, Sean, uh, you, you and I have known one another for a long time, and I have a different perspective. You don't attack a public servant in the middle of her testimony, period, full stop. Let others do the work for you, for Pete's what, sake. What, what so, is the attack? Tell me what the attack <laughs> is. The attack, well, let's put it more gently. The criticism of her public servants. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. Hey, hey laugh, all, laugh, laugh all you will. Look, she's I mean, in the chair. Can't start she, Have we become a nation of total snowflakes? Have we become a nation of total <laughs> snowflakes? The most thing in the world. Oh, my Sean. precious feelings were hurt. Oh, I'm so, oh, he, he didn't like Sean. me. Oh, I feel so bad about myself. Oh my God. Let's bring in a therapy was, dog for me. Hey, you're convincing me. You're absolutely... <laughs> Sean, here's the situation. Oh, I need hot my cocoa. God. Go yeah, so this is the kind of stuff that's going on is where they're daring to talk about how Trump may be, you know, fucking up. And they're well, just like, oh, it, my God, you snowflake, you ridiculous person. It almost person. kind of seemed like Tr like Hannity's response to what Ken Starr said was like a nervous, involuntary laugh. He's like, he's like, Sean, okay, how about a gentler form? It's not becoming the president to criticize someone while they're giving their testimony and sean hannity just like laughs and ken Starr is like laugh all you want it was just such a yeah, funny yeah, moment yeah, to yeah. me because it's like they're all getting like punchy they're like punch drunk from having to double down double down double down on trump's bizarre scatterbrained irresponsible behavior ken Starr is the guy like the lead prosecutor in the impeachment trials for clinton and he's even just like why would like why doesn't he just let someone else tweet these things about the witness for him like why would he do it it really doesn't it's not helping trump at all but i guess there are people at fox news who think that it helps trump to just directly do these things to get himself in more trouble it's like they admire the fact that he doesn't give a shit and that's what's to them is like all that matters there's more stuff happening in Fox News that's more serious than that. It's not as funny as that clip, but Brett Baer, who is typically not very anti-Trump, came out and said his reaction to the second day of hearings was, he said, it looks like Schiff just effectively added a new article of impeachment in real time, a witness obstruction, because the president was tweeting that. Now, whether that actually is witness obstruction or not, that'll have to shape out. I mean, I think it was kind of clever political trickery that Adam Schiff did that in the hearing. But to have Fox News sort of reinforce that framing and and just put, put it out there is a big, really big deal, I think. Like that, that they're not doubling down on the fact that it's okay for Trump to do this. Like they're already clear. I think the people at Fox News, at least maybe behind the scenes, are like, why is Trump not handling this better? You know, at the very least, they have to be thinking, why doesn't Trump just shut the fuck up and let us do the heavy lifting for him? Yeah, in so many words, that's basically what they're saying. They can do a better job than he can if he just shut his mouth and and didn't say goddamn thing. You know, it's it's really depressing because while I do want these impeachment hearings to go forward, and I do love to smell blood in the water of Fox News and to see Trump have a total meltdown and act like a scared little bitch... I mean, one of the first Democrat witnesses for impeachment during the hearings in his opening statement, he just sounded like a super Cold War 2.0 neocon like the people I covered in my film. 
he talked about the importance of deterring Russian aggression by arming Ukraine in his opening statement, and then also said it's important for, to have a Europe whole free and at peace. So I was just like, this is just a mess. It's really unfortunate that this is what they're using to impeach Trump over. But at the same time, like I do love seeing the civil war at Fox News. It's hilarious. It's fun. And we didn't announce this already. Roger Stone, guilty on all charges. I think he's a total piece of shit. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan. But at the same time, the charges of why he's going to jail are based around this false idea that he was somehow working with the WikiLeaks. It was never proven. So there's a lot of mixed feelings I have here. Interestingly enough, my interview with um, Randy Credico was brought up in the case, in the actual trial itself on the public record. Yeah, You didn't tell me that. Wow. I I think Randy Credico feels really bad about being the star witness and making him go to prison, but he had no choice. I mean, what was he going to do? Perjure himself on Roger Stone's behalf? So fuck Roger Stone. He, He made his own bed and now it's time to lay in it. But yeah, it seems like it's kind of an interesting target when it really is predicated on this kind of false notion that WikiLeaks was instrumental in collaborating with Trump to get him elected. And we know that that's largely a farce. So, you know, it is odd. Um, But yeah, I think Roger Stone is guilty as a motherfucking snake of so many other things that they could have gotten him on. I'm actually not sure what the seven counts are. Are they all related to that? I think they're all related to different forms of perjury or lying under oath. I, you know, honestly, I don't know the details, but I know that there's nothing in that trial at all that proves anything having to do with his back channel to WikiLeaks. Um, I know that for a fact. Right. And right. at the same time, like, I think Roger Stone did some really shady shit, probably had some involvement in helping launch Pizzagate. But again, I can't prove any of these things. This is just all me sort of watching it from afar and being like, wow, yeah, Roger Stone really is doing something really shady in this election. So I could see how he got caught up in this, but ultimately they weren't able to prove what theories, you know, this overall theory that there was a big Russian collusion framework behind all this. So yeah, it's it's weird. It's really weird. Um, but this is apparently the fifth Trump official that has been convicted. Yeah, the pressure's on. I just hope in the the end of this, Rudy Giuliani goes to jail because he is someone I would genuinely feel safer if he was in a prison cell. Out of all the people in the Trump administration, I'd want to see him go down. That would be the person I'd be most excited about because I think he is a deeply criminal figure. Deeply criminal. Absolutely. Ken Starr almost looked like he was just nervously laughing, like he didn't want to disagree with Hannity. It seems like a lot of these people are kind of scared to disagree with the narrative that Fox News pushes, just unabated worshiping of Donald Trump. But Robbie, I mean, we have to remember that in all of this impeachment stuff and everything that Trump does, as stupid as he may look, is all just 8D chess. I had someone tell me that the other day. He was like, your impeachment analysis was really superficial because Trump actually knows exactly what he's doing. And it's like, oh, really? Like, oh, my gosh. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, Abby, we're not galaxy brain enough on this. We're not zero hedging it enough on this. We're not saying, we're not coming out with, I don't know if you saw this story, Abby, but zero hedge um, was basically pizzagating the lawyer for the whistleblower. Almost sort of insinuating that it's like Trump has awoken you know, it's like this. these are the pedo deep state forces coming from. Not just the deep state forces, but the pedo deep state forces who are trying to impeach him. But yeah, but he is playing AT chess because the IG report is about to come out. And the Trump administration 
is now clearly stating that this allegedly 500-page IG report is coming in early December, and it will uncover these people who, I guess, criminally, who the Trump administration believes criminally investigated their campaign to undermine the 2016 election. And so that's fascinating because the timing of when they announced that the IG report is going to come out does sort of coincide with this impeachment hearing. But was the IG report already announced before the Democrats started impeachment? Because I could see if you get into sort of a conspiratorial mindset, you could think that this is sort of a shell game happening here. This is like the impeachment versus the IG report. Like the Democrats accelerated the impeachment because they were afraid of the IG report. Like that's how these people are sort of in their own mind spinning it. But the Republicans are beginning to spin this report itself before it comes out as saying that the Dems kickstarted impeachment because of the IG report. So it's not just conspiracy people. It's like the Republicans themselves are now saying this on Fox News. And they felt threatened. So that the Democrats felt threatened by the IG report so that they sped up impeachment. That's the Republican narrative right now from some Republicans. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm not saying I believe that. It's just an interesting spin they're trying to put on it. And then even some of the most competent Russiagate debunkers out there, who I actually follow and like a lot of their work, are now themselves seeing this report very differently from the Mueller report and are hedging on the fact that Brennan, John Brennan, the former CIA director, will be implicated and then it will be on some level more of a serious investigation and a series of indictments than the Mueller report was. But I just find that a very interesting double standard because on some level, this it does seem to be some sort of political revenge, but it's with the arm of the Justice Department. So then we have to look at it like, well, what if this is real? What if this is all for real? And they really are going after these people who really did do something possibly criminal to spy on the Trump campaign with this Russia paranoia hysteria using the Steele dossier as the basis. But we also have to look at the history of who's in charge of this investigation, William Barr and John Durham. Barr was responsible for the legal advice that pardoned every Iran-Contra criminal in the, I think, in the George H.W. Bush administration. And John Durham, if you look up his history, directly helped cover up the CIA torture program. So taking these things together, Abby, this is not going to be some attack on the so-called deep state. This will absolutely also not in any way cause any serious harm to undermine the institutions of the CIA, NSA, or FBI. Even if this is a 500-page report blasting Brennan and Comey, this is not going to undermine the institutions. And the last time a CIA director was ever charged criminally with anything was Richard Helms for two misdemeanors for lying under oath. And guess what his penalty was? He got his sentence completely commuted immediately And he had to pay a $2,000 fine, which the CIA basically passed around a hat and paid for for him as a symbolic gesture for his service. So that's what happens in history when CIA directors get charged with crimes. For people excited about this report or who think Trump is playing this incredible game of AT chess still, please understand what I've just told you. That even if this is going to be some kind of attack on these people who tried to undermine Trump's campaign using shady methods, it'll still be a limited hangout bullshit report and probably a very partisan one at that. To imagine that this will actually go after any Republican figures? No. It seems like it's just a big partisan show and deflection it, it absolutely um, is. from what's going on. Yeah. It absolutely is, but it would also be interesting to see the timing of this. Like, 
are some Democrats worried about this? I mean, there's a slight possibility that some of them actually are, but I don't, but there's really no indication. Like I haven't really seen anything on CNN or when these intelligence people come on that they're worried about this in any way. The Trump administration and Fox News is acting like they should be worried about it. So that's the two narratives we're getting. And of course, obviously this ties in some really direct way actually to QAnon, which makes it even more bizarre. So that's where we are with that. We're going to get that in early December. So stay tuned, everybody. And also don't hold your breath for that one. Yeah, some other headlines going on. Local city council race in Seattle. My friend Shama Sawant, who I've interviewed several times for Empire Files, an incredible socialist elected official who already has served a term on the Seattle City Council. She was basically the first one in the country pushing $15 an hour minimum wage, like bringing it to the public consciousness. Amazon setting up shop in Seattle poured $1.5 million into the local city council race to try to completely oust the city council through the shell organization. And when the election tally was coming in, uh, it looked like Amazon had won out. Her opponent was up by like, I don't know, like eight points or something like that. And it was almost declared a loss. And then at the last minute, all of these votes came in that basically pushed her up and she ended up winning. So it was a huge victory against Amazon, and she basically ran on taxing Amazon. And all the other candidates who Amazon tried to oust didn't lose their seats either. So it was a huge victory. It showed you that Seattle really rejected this notion that, you know, giant corporations, some of the most powerful in the world, can just literally buy out local legislatures to control and prevent them from being taxed at all. And they just want to control the whole city. So that was a huge, huge victory. Congrats to Shama Sawant. Another interesting thing, Robbie, I don't know if you've been following this Medicare for All revelation from Elizabeth Warren, but wow, what an embarrassing, an embarrassing trajectory she has been on in terms of putting out her Medicare for All plan. Um, it just shows you that Bernie Sanders continues to outflank every Democratic candidate on the progressive front, not only calling to abolish ICE, which absolutely should be done. We've talked about this before. It's a new, just like the Department of Homeland Security, this is a new agency that does not need to exist. Newly formed in the wake of 9-11 in this power grab to expand the national security state and all of these police apparatuses and ICE just absolutely should be abolished, 100%. So you see just him fissuring, you know, going way to the left of every other candidate just saying, yeah, of course we should abolish ICE. Of course, billionaires shouldn't exist. And he's going to introduce Medicare for all legislation in his first fucking week in office. Where does Warren stand on that? You may remember, Robbie, that Warren continued to raise her hand, pretend like she was right next to Bernie Sanders, all these debates whenever they were like, do you want to abolish private insurance? And she's like, yeah, I do. You know, and she was like, yeah, 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 I support Medicare for all. Well, when Pete Buttigieg attacked her from the right during the last debate, about how are you going to pay for that? You know, that, that tired argument, how are we going to pay for this? Um, and he was like, are you going to raise middle-class taxes? And she refused to say yes, whereas Bernie just comes out and says, yes, middle-class taxes will be raised, but overall costs will go down. And this is very obvious. I mean, by thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, your overall costs of healthcare will go drastically down. So having a small tax on, on the middle class is actually... Um, totally understandable. So Warren, you know, she wasn't able to respond to Pete and she wasn't able to respond to basically anyone's criticisms in that debate, which really worried me because I was like, damn, if you can't fucking respond to Biden, Buttigieg, what are you going to do when you're next to Trump when he's calling you Pocahontas? 
like I felt like people were not not ganging up on her in the debate, but it seemed like there was it was like they saw her as someone to knock out of the race. Some some of the other candidates did, and they found that a, l- a little bit interesting. Yeah, I mean she, she is was, polling she was really high, so yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and Buttigieg is now like seemingly at the top of the Iowa caucus, which is worrisome. Um, when like in reality, he only won one election ever by like like ten thousand votes or something like that. I may be getting the number wrong, but like a very minuscule amount of votes is when he won his mayoral bid. So it's just odd to kind of leap to the presidency when you really have no experience at all and you've never really won an election that's bigger than a mayor race um, winning by very few votes. So it's it's really interesting how popular he is. Uh, I don't know if it's just completely inflated. I don't know where the support is coming from. Anyway, when Warren was attacked by all these people, she took like two months working with economists to figure out this giant plan on how are we going to pay for that without raising middle-class taxes comes back two months later. And mind you, this is like three months before the first primary. It's like, why do you, why don't you have a healthcare plan? I thought you had a plan for that. I thought you had a plan <laughs> for everything, Elizabeth. Like, why don't you have a plan for fucking healthcare, which is like the primary thing that you've attached, you know, hitched your wagon to Bernie at the beginning to pretend that you were progressive when in reality, she didn't support Medicare for all until like 2016 because she was a Republican for 47 years. Could one even argue that Hillary Clinton was more progressive on healthcare than Elizabeth Warren was at a certain period of time? Probably. And so was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. I mean, I was just realizing that, that on a certain, if you're looking at a certain timeline, like the 90s and early 2000s, I guarantee you that even whatever Elizabeth Warren was saying was less left-wing progressive on, in terms of healthcare than Hillary Clinton, which is, which is just odd. Absolutely. Absolutely. So she comes back with this giant plan that a lot of people ended up touting and being like, this finally proves she's progressive. She did it, Robbie. She did it. She, she showed how we can pay for healthcare without raising middle class taxes. The problem is many things. I mean, first of all, it would, it would require passing immigration reform. With Republicans in office, it, I find it hard to believe that she would have the political capital to do that and then pass this health care plan. But also it calls for taking money from the military budget, which she has voted for consecutively under Trump. She has never deterred or swayed from just giving Trump carte blanche, nearly a trillion dollars to just have complete and total power of the military. So I don't know what her plan was on that. Maybe 8D chess to vote for the military budget its highest ever and then later scale from the top and use it for health care. But the worst part of all is that it's a regressive head tax, meaning a flat tax on corporations that will basically pass off the cost to ding, 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 middle class fucking workers. There's so many loopholes that they can wade through to basically just make everyone independent contractors. Aside from the fact that the payment structure is nonsensical and very, very hard to understand why she's doing it this way. Um, just trying to basically make it seem like Bernie's worse, you know, and she's not going to raise taxes and Bernie is. Um, when in reality, there's so many loopholes that corporations can use to avoid paying this. And she also was on camera being like, if you have less than a billion dollars, you're not going to get taxed. So if you have $999 million, you're fine. Your taxes are not going to go up at all. It's like, wait, well, how does that make sense? I mean, how many billionaires really are there? And like, don't you think that they can find a way to evade this? The more I think about her and, and the way that people are responding to her, it just it just gets weird because I don't know if you 
we didn't even talk about this on the podcast, but do you did you hear about the leaked all hands meeting Facebook call that leaked? It was like the first one that ever leaked that Mark Zuckerberg actually like talks on to like all the employees. No, was he talking about how terrified he is of her? <laughs> yeah. And I just found that strange because yeah. there are people, even Fox News keeps saying this, that the Wall Street is like really terrified of Warren. They'll mention that about Bernie sometimes, but they'll like maybe they'll mention Warren more in that context. And it and it's odd framing because I wonder if it's a I don't know if I'm using the right term, but it's like a it's like a trap. It's like a heat trap or something. It's like yeah. we want people yeah. to think this is the case, but it's actually not really because like they would be more threatened by Bernie. I mean, if we're looking at a scale of who's putting out more radical anti-capitalist language and taxing you know rich people, it would be Bernie. So that's fascinating that they keep going to her. But I don't know. You know, I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah. What to make of that? No, I mean, I think you're absolutely dead on is that they are definitely trying to prop her up is that she's the candidate that Wall Street's fearful of when in reality, I mean, healthcare stocks went up after she announced her plan because let me explain what she did now. After people were all confused and the conversation was all muddled about what the hell's going on with this payment structure for Medicare for All under Elizabeth Warren's vision, she just came out, I think, in a really bald-faced way because it really just revealed her hand here and showed that she's not a progressive. She basically adopted Pete Buttigieg's healthcare plan. And I'll explain why. So she came out with the structure of how she's going to do the rollout, Robbie. And what it is, is non-fucking-sensical. The first three years that she's in office, she's just going to expand Affordable Care Act. So she's going to use all of her political capital all of the momentum building in this country, 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. This is a bipartisan issue. All of these people are ready, right? Finally ready to get health care. Wasting her political capital to literally roll out ACA, revamp the Affordable Care Act in the first three years in office. So that is the first legislative rollout that she's going to make. Then, then in her third year, then while she's running for re-election, mind you, like while she's going to try to appeal to everyone again and be probably more moderate than even she was in the first three years, then she's going to try to pass Medicare. So then she's going to do another legislative push to try to pass Medicare for people under, I'm sorry, for people over 50. So it's not even going to be Medicare for everyone, for babies, like, like Bernie Sanders says. It's just going to be over 50 at that point in her fourth year. In office. So she's really talking about Medicare for all in her 2024 campaign. Can you believe how insane that is? People are just like, what are you talking about? And all these Pete Buttigieg supporters are just like, you literally just stole Pete Buttigieg's plan. It's really surreal. It's like first she was just like swinging on Bernie's talking points. And now she's just like, okay, I can't trick Bernie people anymore. Now I just have to go more right and more centrist on this. And it's it's appalling, frankly. Um, I'll put two links in the timeline about this that you can read more about. First about the regressive head tax and then about just this Medicare for all after a public option plan and how impossible it is to imagine that she'd actually have the political capital to do this in her third year of office after already wasting the energy on this ACA rollout. So she's terrible. I mean, I don't know if you saw that clip of Amy Goodman interviewing her. And it was a very legitimate question about how elections are structured. I mean, you know, I not did, only yeah. the archaic electoral college, but just the fact that you have to primary in these really pr primarily white states 
and kind of ignore people of color. And, and she's scoffing like in the middle of Amy Goodman. And she's like, I'm just a player in the game. I'm just a player in the game. And then when she's shaking Amy Goodman's hand, she's like, okay, yeah. Like Amy's like, thank you. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's horrible. She's horrible. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know what people saw in her, but I see phoniness. And to me, that's the most obvious thing about her is that she's not authentic. And I know that it's impossible to gauge that with any politician, their level of authenticity. I do not think she's an authentic person. Um, and that's sort of always been my impression of her. Yeah. You, you weren't convinced by the big structural Bailey, this giant inflatable dog that I guess was supposed to be her dog with pennies on his chest. Like it, she had this big float at, I don't even know what the hell it was. It looked like an empty street with this giant inflatable dog. And she's like running toward it, like with her arms outstretched. And I just keep saying over in my head, like I'll wake up and just think big structural Bailey with these pennies on the dog's chest. I don't understand what the hell is going on. She seems like she just, I don't know. I, I mean, I hope that she just tanks because this whole Medicare for all thing has just really revealed how disingenuous she is. And yeah, I, I agree. It is, she is very untrustworthy, you know, and, and it would be different if she had 47 years like Bernie of progressive values and fighting for the same things that, he, that she is today. But you know, when you just adopt yeah. these policies two years ago when they were politically convenient and then you're already flip-flopping on them, how can we possibly trust you to fight for them while you're in office? There's absolutely no trustworthiness that's been built up. So, I mean, all they have to do is say the Pocahontas thing and say, you know, you, you pretended to be Native American and they're right. And um, this is not a right-wing talking point. This is a Cherokee talking point. So, sadly that really has come to define her legacy is how she exploited, you know, a, a disenfranchised minority and really did try to benefit from it. And that, and it's really unfortunate because she can't escape that and that's going to haunt her forever. So, but let's move on to another issue that she's absolutely abysmal on, which is Gaza, several bombing campaigns, which started Robbie with the extrajudicial assassination of an Islamic Jihad leader while he was sleeping in bed um, with his entire family. And then, of course, they retaliate with rockets because why would you not after you were just taken out? You know, your family was taken out. A civilian neighborhood was bombed. So, of course, rockets are going to be sent in retaliation. And then, of course, Israelis use the rockets being sent as a justification to just completely wipe out several buildings, killing ultimately 34 Palestinians. Oh, my God. An entire oh family God. was wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Horrifying. So the Israeli forces are not just rooting out Hamas. I mean, why would they assassinate an Islamic Jihad leader? Do they have the authority to do that with Hamas figures anymore? I, I don't really yes, understand. They do all the time. Yeah. So, but what was the reason? Was it just because he was a leader of this group or did he commit a particular crime? Do you know anything about that? Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's just because he had inflammatory rhetoric and they just found him to be a threat in the future, kind of like we do with drone strikes all over the world. They just, you know, they, can, they just feel like they can take out and all of these leaders. Yeah, pre-crime. Yeah, I mean, Israel really did sort of uh, pioneer pre-crime. I mean, we forget that, that the war on terror kind of came from them. Um, and now it's just normalized that it's like, okay to kill militants, quote-unquote militants in drone strikes. Well, it's like, what were those militants doing? We're supposed to trust that they were 
about to commit some kind of terrorist attack on the United States. Like that's what it used to be. That's how it used to be framed. This idea that, oh, we have to kill them before they kill us over here. They're going to attack the United States somehow. Like Al Qaeda, you know, allegedly did on 9-11. But it's like, that's not even how it's framed anymore. It's just like a given that it's like, oh, if they're a militant or if they're like a bomb maker or something, then yeah, yeah, like we, we got to take them out. Like that's, that's just, that's how we do things. Like what do you, what do you have a problem with? It's strange how it's sort of moved up to that now where before it's like, it almost used to be, the framework used to be easier to poke holes in. Now it's like people have just gotten so conditioned that it's just like totally okay. It's like they've forgotten how weird that was to begin with. Yeah, I mean, just how many people actually die in these Hamas rocket attacks? You know, you you almost never hear about it. And Bernie, who sadly, you know, out of all the Democrats running, has the best overall position on Palestine, he's got to come out with this really bad sort of all lives matter, you know, conflating both sides tweet about Israel-Palestine saying... Quote, Israelis should not have to live in fear of rocket fire. Palestinians should not have to live under occupation and blockade. The U.S. must lead the effort. But, you know, he uses the word occupation and blockade. Good. But to, like, compare the two, the idea that Israelis actually legitimately live in fear of rocket fire, like, on a daily basis, that's some sort of existential dread they face, and comparing that to the brutal genocidal occupation of Palestine, it just sucks that this is the best candidate in the Democratic race who's going to tweet something like this. So I have a novel idea for the people who live under, quote, fear of rocket fire. Move out of Stair Road. Why do you live right next to Gaza? So you can watch them be bombed on your hilltop in the Stair Road cinema, drinking beer and is eating Is that where most of the rockets go? kids die. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. So it's it's like very rabid settlers who kind of, get off and like fetishize the notion of like living in threat of rocket fire so they can just kind of sadistically relish in the continued bombing and besiegement of Gaza. It's very bizarre. You don't need to live there. There's hundreds of miles of open desert. You know, you can, you can live anywhere, but for some reason they want to live right there. Just like these settlers, these fanatical settlers just want to live right on top of an Arab village, right on top of them. But yeah, I mean, I was really disappointed by Bernie's tweet. I called him out immediately. I said, we must be very clear about who the oppressor is. It's very clear. This is the difference between, I find, you know, criticisms of Bernie and Tulsi is that Bernie supporters will be very quick to get on his ass when we feel like he's not going far enough. And yeah, I mean, he does have by far the best policy position on Palestine, Gaza, and that's basically because the left has pushed him on this issue. I mean, Back four years ago, he could barely muster the words disproportionate when he was talking about the Gaza massacre in 2014. And it shows you how much the movement has pushed him further left over the last four years. The fact that he's calling about leveraging aid. But yeah, I mean, when he says stuff like this, it's disappointing and we all need to get on him and say no and pressure him from the left. Yeah. So, of course, I got a lot of criticisms from people being like, oh, he's the best person on this. I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we need to keep pushing him from the left. We need to do this on every issue, whether it's him getting Venezuela wrong. I mean, we have to be correcting him and pushing him to be a further anti-imperialist than he is because his positions on these are not acceptable in terms of, you know, the Venezuela coup and whatnot. Like, we need him to know that we're not going to stand for that. 
And I find it interesting because if you do the same thing for Tulsi, you know, her absence on condemning the Bolivia coup, her terrible position on Palestine, seems like people will just hold it against you forever and say that you're a neo-lib shill who wants a job at TYT. So it's a fascinating kind of dichotomy. I mean, I feel like there is no candidate that is a sacred cow. I feel like we need to be criticizing all of these people from the left and pushing them from the left. And if you're not doing that, um, that's strange. And that's the thing. It's like we criticize people on the left who we think fall short or who are putting out you know, bad information sometimes. I mean, we've criticized things on TYT. We've criticized things that Glenn Greenwald has said. It's Yeah, it's really unfortunate that the Tulsi thing has become this thing where you, you can't criticize her from the left. They really, really do not like it. Um, and I'll just I'll just leave it there because um, it's it's mm-hmm. it just is the case. You know, I, I, I don't want to use any language to describe it. People weren't like this with other anti-war candidates like Ron Paul. You know, they weren't this loyal and unwilling to have discussions about ways that they fell short. So it's too bad. The Inez government in Bolivia has just emitted a decree basically exempting the military from legal responsibility for all these abuses being committed. So essentially a license to kill. This is coming off of the heels of a massacre that had already taken place against indigenous campesinos in Sacaba, Cochabamba, um, an indigenous community that at least five people were massacred who were fighting against paramilitary forces. I think across the country, at least 34 people have died. The new government, which is a Christian fascist government, has already put out a warrant for Morales's arrest if he steps foot back in the country. He is out there now alleging in the media that the coup was carried out from the U.S. Embassy in Bolivia. If you remember, Robbie, in the last episode that we broke this all down, that's what the leaked audio recordings explained. That the attacks on, on polling centers, all of these leaked audio recordings that expose the collaboration between U.S. senators famously, who really are on the front lines of these pro-democracy movements like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, they were in talks with the Bolivian opposition leaders basically planning this. And they talked about how this would all be carried out from the U.S. embassy in Bolivia. So this is what Morales is alleging now. We haven't seen direct evidence of this, but I mean, just put the pieces together. It's not that hard to figure out. You know, meanwhile, you have these predatory journalists ransacking Evo Morales's house. It literally looks like a Motel 6, like king bed, like very unassuming bedroom. There's no lavish ornamental like things decorating the room at all. It's just like literally drapes and a bed and a dresser. And these journalists are ransacking it, piling over each other to basically be like, look how luxurious this is. Look how luxurious he was living. Look how lavishly he was living. What journalists? Yeah, like, sick. where are they from? What what kind of outlets? Oh, like the like the right wing, because um, we already know that like the left wing and like state TV outlets were shut down that were associated with yeah. the um, the socialist party. So it's all like the other media outlets that are apologizing for this. It's it's really horrific footage. It made me tear up. It was like very very disgusting, and it just shows you what's going on right now. And the last thing I'll say about Bolivia is that um, the School of Americas, of course, it's confirmed that multiple graduates from the School of Americas, which we talked about in the last episode, led this coup. And this is not without precedent, Robbie. In Bolivia in 1971, 
the U.S. also staged a military coup with a School of America's graduate. His name was General Hugo Bonzar Suarez, and he led a military coup backed by the CIA against another Democratic leftist president. And for nine years, he ruled as a brutal military dictator, murdering, arresting, and torturing thousands of suspected leftists with death squads um, and God knows what else. So this is the same game that we're seeing today play out. Very, very sad. But you're a tanky for saying, I mean, we don't know this is... (laughs) It's just sad that, dude, every... It's just so funny. Like, we definitely are in that weird zone now where we get called tanky and neolib for different reasons because we oppose Trump so strongly. And then people are like, what do you like, Hillary instead? Yeah, neolib. <laughs> yeah, Hillary right. bot. It's like, right. no, dude, we <laughs> oppose the person who's sitting in the White House. Like, you probably should too. We're not resistance because we oppose the person in the White House. We hate those motherfuckers also. And yeah, you get, I guess you get called a tanky now for thinking that the CIA, under one of the most right-wing administrations we've ever seen, would be wanting to fuck around in South America and go back to these like 80s-style coups, anti-left coups in all these South American countries. That makes you a tanky to think that this is happening? I mean, people called you a tanky during the Arab Spring. You know, that was a bigger leap to take, maybe, to think that the Arab Spring was all done by the CIA. But now they're, you're being called a tanky for thinking the Trump administration CIA is behind these very classically right-wing style, 80s Reagan-era style coups? Like, what? It's, it's hilarious. It's weird. Yeah, with, with people who have openly reclaimed the Monroe Doctrine, you know, people like Mike Pompeo, I mean, John Bolton, these genocidal maniacs who have openly yeah. talked about how socialism yeah. is the biggest threat on the planet and rerouted our attention to the troika of tyranny. I mean, how much more exactly. obvious does this have to be? Yeah, the Monroe Doctrine thing, it's like they openly talk about it. This is not just like journalists or researchers theorizing that this is the agenda they're doing. They're clearly laying it out. The Obama administration didn't say we're going to try to democratize the Middle East by like exacerbating all these protests all over the place, writing on the backs of the WikiLeaks. They didn't openly say that, but the Trump administration has openly said what they want to do in South America and to their quote unquote hemisphere. So I can understand even during the Obama administration thinking that those things were being messed around with or even maybe spurred on or started by the CIA. I can still understand that, but this is so much more clear, yet you still get accused of being a tanky and it makes no sense. I I just don't understand who these people are that accuse you of being a tanky for this shit. And I even got tweets from people saying it's not a coup who created their Twitter accounts like two days before they tweeted at me. And literally all their tweets were just saying it's not a coup. It's not a coup to like all these different people. (laughs) It's the most obvious fake sock puppeting on social media I've ever seen. And that's, again, why they want to make such a big deal about Russian disinformation flooding the internet and being a threat to our democracy, because these are the real versions of it that they don't want us to pay attention to. They don't want us to notice how there's like bot networks or all these thousands of fake sock puppet accounts of fake Bolivians just literally saying over and over again the exact same sentence. This is not a coup. Literally word for word, a copy and paste bot network. They don't want us to pay attention to those, so they just inflate this Russian thing. It's like, yeah, RT and these channels, like Russian media is real. 
Yeah, Russian media tries to criticize the United States a lot, but there's I don't I've never seen any evidence of these like so-called Russian bot networks like I see when these kind of things happen. I mean, it's so much more apparent when you see this type of shit. It's like they want us to look at something that's not really happening so we ignore what is actually happening and what's going to actually get worse and worse on social media and try to confuse people when something so obvious is actually happening. Right, and they always say, oh, let me guess, you're not Bolivian. Let me guess, you haven't talked to any actual Bolivians, just like the Venezuelan opposition. It's like, yeah, yeah. well, the indigenous campesinos probably have less access to Twitter if you're real, which more often than not, uh, it seems like these accounts were really newly minted. Yep. Yep. Newly it's, created, I mean, it's beyond, so. it's beyond bad faith arguing. You know, there's a lot of bad faith arguments going on right now, but that is literally like astroturf faked whatever you want to call it, bot networks, who knows where it's coming from. I don't, I don't know if it's coming from the CIA. Who the fuck knows? They never even really proved that the IRA did all these Russian trolling operations on social media was actually connected to the Russian government. They never even really proved that. So like all these little things could all just be these like private shell organizations that just like take business from all over the world from all these different entities to like run you know, whatever bot network propaganda that someone hires them to do, the shit is, could get really convoluted and it, and it's yeah, super imagine easy how, to do. How far just like a million dollars can go. Yeah. I mean, if they have $54 oh million dollars to throw around to like Wido, like yeah. damn. Can't even, even imagine how much a million dollars would get you, you know, just for one day. And some of these things, you only really need one or two days, a, a two day window to really like blast it. You don't really need more time than that. Because if it's like right when yeah, the exactly. coup is you happening just, his, yep. and, and Morales is being pushed out of power, you just need like two days straight of like wall-to-wall -wall Twitter bots blasting. This is not a coup. Like fake Bolivian accounts blasting to like Americans on Twitter. I mean, it's a, it is a yep. fascinating thing how effective just that alone could be. And And think about, we always talk about this too, but like think about beyond governments, lithium corporations you know, electronics, you know, like all of these shell organizations that could be deployed from actual like corporate entities as well that have a stake in the game. So we don't know where the shit's coming from, man. It's, it could be anywhere. So Robbie, I wanted to get to this in the last episode as we were talking about, you know, uprisings. We covered all of Latin America pretty much with Pablo Vivanco. Check that episode out. Bolivia, we did an episode on that. Um, we haven't really talked about the Middle East. There's a lot going on there. Lebanon, tons of protests, which forced the prime minister to resign after only two weeks. Very interesting. I'd like to get more into that later. I don't know enough to comment more on that. But Iraq, Iraq has been a complete shit show. I mean, I guess you could say since, you know, since the early 90s or even prior to that. But you know what the U.S. did completely obliterating Iraq. Um, it's just been a devastating situation exacerbated of course by the 2003 invasion and subsequent occupation that has never ended you know trump went into iraq and basically doubled the amount of troops that obama had left there and all the troops he's rerouting from syria are just sent to iraq to continue this perpetual occupation but aside from that 
you know, as liberals continue to rehabilitate George W. Bush, which is another thing we didn't talk about because it happened when I was gone on the tour, this Ellen DeGeneres rehabilitation of George W. Bush and all of these people just bending over backwards to apologize for her and him, a horrific bloodletting is taking place in devastated Iraq where, you know, this is a U.S. installed government still and, quote, anonymous snipers stationed all over Baghdad and beyond are wantonly executing unarmed protesters. The videos are absolutely horrific. Uh, people literally standing there with flags. I mean, like, like even more extreme than Gaza because it's just like, it's just really, really horrifying because you could just see them just like opening fire with like machine guns on crowds of protesters. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and it's killed more than 300 people the government has actually blocked the number of people who have died. And this is not just like clashes. This is people who are like getting sniped and shot down. Also shooting people trying to rescue the wounded, as well as multiple reports of kidnapping medical Who's workers. Doing this? The protests, that's the thing is that it's like government militias and quote anonymous snipers. There so was just this kind of like Euromaidan style. Yeah, Creepy. no, it's really scary. This big leak from The Intercept has claimed that it's like Iran influence in Iraq. I was about to read this big report in preparation for this podcast, and then I saw that Murtaza Hussein was the one who was on Democracy Now! talking about this. And so I thought, hmm, I don't know if he's someone that I really trust on this, but I'm still going to read this report and see what exactly has come out. But it seems like it's a Sunni-Shia thing where... I, I don't know, like the Iranian allegiance is now being painted as like Iran is somehow manufacturing all of the shit in Iraq. I, I tend to not believe that. I feel like that's an irresponsible narrative, but I'm going to have to look more into that and, and see what's going on. But as far as we know, it's, um, it's the government. It's the government and proxies working with the government to basically shut down and put fear in the hearts of these protesters who are totally unarmed and literally calling for like the most basic services, like electricity, water, housing and jobs um it's turned so into sad. of course like trying to get the government to step down um muqtada al-sadir is part of the ruling class that was brought forward by the u.s occupation in 2003 he's still part of the current islamic government and you know i i heard a lot of people giving interviews about this and they just said it like it's just such a extreme disparity of wealth and power between the green zone all of the people who are protected the elites and everyone else who's just being brutalized um there's this makeshift occupy style encampment in the middle of tahrir square a huge building was taken over where they're literally just providing like services kind of like occupy um, healthcare, housing, water, and electricity to the people who are just protesting. But it's just really, really sad because we are not hearing one peep about this on the corporate media or from Trump, essentially, because the oil never stopped flowing. So, of course, he doesn't give a shit. You know, no one gives a shit about these protests that are absolutely brutal among the worst crackdown in the entire world in terms of like a militarized police state crackdown on armed protests. This is happening in Iraq with not a word from major media corporations because, again, there's no resources to be had. There's nothing to gain from talking about it. And the U.S., of course, has never really left. So that's it in a nutshell. I'll, I'll keep following the story, but I just felt really just helpless and devastated looking at these videos and, and absolutely sickened 
that this is going on and just thinking how how much better off Iraq would be if the U.S. never never did anything to it. Yeah, really, really sad. Um, can't I don't really have much more to say about it, but it just I'm really, really skeptical of most of Murtaza's uh, sort of slant in his coverage um, and just his general political worldview. Yeah, that the intercept is not what I thought it was going to be. You know, I couldn't, I would have never thought in a million years when the intercept first opened that it would be running lengthy reports about how Iranian forces are trying to like snipe down Iraqi protesters in Iraq. Like it's just so, so surprising. It just surprises me that that would be something that we'd be spending a lot of their resources and time on. So Robbie, why don't you introduce this Stephen Miller expose that came out from the Southern Poverty Law Center? I know we have a multitude of disagreements with the SPLC sometimes. Maybe they didn't publish all the emails, but they just published like a synopsis of them, I guess, as part one of this ongoing expose, which Stephen Miller sent to Breitbart. Um between 2015 and 2016, before he was Trump's right-hand man. He was an aide to Jeff Sessions when he sent these emails, um, and more than 80% of these emails were focused on race and immigration. So why don't you talk a little bit about the emails and what your takeaway was from them? Well, I mean, I guess one of the first things that I, that this is just on a side note comment, not about the emails themselves, but I was a little bit bothered by the fact that it seemed like they didn't just dump all the emails. And even though I guess this is going to be a continuing series of leaks they're going to be showing, it seemed like other journalists had access to these emails already and were given exclusive access by the SPLC. And that also kind of bugged me. Just leak them all. Like, have them all just out there, like WikiLeaks style. It always irks me when that kind of journalism is done. If you're having all these emails and it's all about some kind of data breach like this, I want to see all of it. So we can get the not. I'm not saying that they're taking it out of context. I'm not implying that. I'm saying I I just want to see more shit, and I feel like it would be a great service to journalism as a whole, so that other people could search through those, just like what WikiLeaks provides. But the emails themselves, I mean, showed us a lot of stuff that you know for people who have been following Stephen Miller and who aren't in denial about the sort of white nationalist connections to the Trump administration would have probably already known before, but this largely confirms straight from his own mouth, his own keyboard, what, you know, we, we thought. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that there's not like more straight up crazy neo-Nazi stuff in here, even though probably the craziest thing in here is that book that he keeps referencing about how that it was very influential to him. It was a book about how a horde of like, Indians came and invaded and like destroyed Europe and like took the, it over. The camp of the saints. The camp, the of, the camp saints. of the saints. The guy, uh, the main villain in the book, uh, this like Indian warlord, his name is the Turd Eater. So this is the kind of stuff that gets Stephen Miller off. Is this kind of like immigrant fear mongering like fiction? about a horde of immigrants taking over a country that were the literally the lead villain not just is called the turd eater he literally eats feces that's how these indian immigrants are represented in this book that stephen miller loves so yeah he talks about this to breitbart and breitbart you know kind of takes his advice and compares the pope's rhetoric to how to the book essentially um 
it seemed like Stephen Miller was really worried about how the Pope was being too pro-refugee and kept referencing the Camp of the Saints um, to say, yeah, this is what you guys should talk about. And then the Breitbart did. Um, in his emails, a lot of the policies that Trump employed are reflected. Um, they include the rest quotas for undocumented immigrants, the Muslim ban, and the separation policy of families at the border. One thing that I thought was really interesting from it, Robbie, was that he cited David Frum in one of the emails where Frum tweets about how crimes are, are being committed by foreign youth. And it kind of just oh, reminded yeah. me that as much well, what, as David what, Frum likes to separate from? himself. No. Well, keep going, though. I'll, I'll comment in a second. Yeah. Yeah, as much as David Frum likes to separate himself as like this distinguished, you know, person who's really critical of Trump and, oh, this is uncouth and this isn't what the Republican Party represents. Yeah, they're all pretty much the same xenophobic, anti-Islam pieces of shit. One hop away from like blatant white nationalist rhetoric and actually used by white nationalists to push their agenda. So it was pretty telling. Very telling and also very interesting to roll back the clock a couple years because I'm just going to take a guess here that that tweet by David Frum or that statement by David Frum that Stephen Miller was referencing was from around 2016. And I say this because before the neocons and that political class of people like Jeffrey Goldberg, Max Boot, Frum, Kerchik, before they all started to act like Trump was a blatant bigot and they act tried to like even act like they cared about Islamophobia. You know, they they act like they care about Islamophobia now, which is bizarre. Um before hmm. that, only two years ago, two or three years ago, Jamie Kerchik, Boot, all of them were obsessed with this influx of refugees into Europe and not just regular refugees, I mean, but Muslim ones into Europe and how that was changing the culture and also having a big effect on the crime rate and also rapes. They were really into the idea of the influx of Muslim immigrants causing a rise in rapes, Abby. And actually, Jamie Kerchik was starting to write a lot of articles about how there were all these sort of like sexual assault attacks by Muslims in Europe. Um, And and he kind of stopped. I think the memo went around that it's like we can't we have to separate ourselves even more from the alt-right and Trump right now. We got to drop this Islamophobia dog whistling because it's not it's barely dog whistling. I mean, if you're going to cover constantly these like sexual assaults that are done by like Muslim immigrants and that's all you're constantly covering, that's basically um, what is that guy? Tommy. I want to say Tommy Hilfinger, <laughs> not Tommy Hilfinger, but that like weird midget. <laughs> Tommy Robinson. That weird midget guy. Yeah, Tommy Robinson. <laughs> That's basically Tommy Robinson's stick, right? So if you're going to do that, you can't stay on that train for too long because then you like kind of are too set, like connected to that Tommy Robinson world. So I feel like the neocons abandoned that. So it is fascinating to see Stephen Miller quoting the David Frum thing in that vein, which I would guess is from like two years ago because that's how they were still talking. They don't anymore. Max Boot acts like he cares about Islamophobia now. It's the most hilarious thing ever. These are the same people that subscribe to a patriarchal figure, Don Kagan, who basically said Arabs respect force. Like, I mean, that's like who believed in that paradigm, the Likudnik view of Arabs, a dehumanizing view of Arabs fundamentally underpins their worldview. 
of the and the, what fueled the war on terror. They created the war on terror. These people, these minds, David Frum, these are the people who set that framework up. And it is inherently racist, is deeply racist. I don't even know if you could call it nationalist, uh, but it's just extremely racist and genocidal. Absolutely. One thing that went totally under the radar, which I feel like is directly linked to Stephen Miller, of course, and just, you know, further confirmed by these racist emails we already knew that Stephen Miller was behind the most inflammatory rhetoric and inflammatory policies that Trump has put out there. That's already like a given. But yeah, it definitely helps to have the evidence behind you to prove this, especially since people like Elon Omar got widely condemned being like, oh, okay, um, a Jew can't be a white nationalist, Elon, you anti-Semite. And it's like, really? I'm, I'm happy to have this finally confirmed. You know, because that was just a ridiculous talking point that was used to shield him, just like it is used to shield Ben Shapiro. And it just Dude, actually I even shows saw somebody use that the, against you, who was like a, yeah. obviously like a fake left concern troll, who was like, Abby says this about Tulsi. She also calls Jews white nationalists. And I was like, where is where is he getting that second thing from? And I was like, oh, shit, he got it from like the Stephen Miller, like fake talking point that like Jack Posobiec <laughs> is pretty around. Holy shit, what a fucking idiot. He revealed his concern trolling stick. Sock puppet motherfucker. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but this is a really important story, Robbie, that it shows you how crazy this time is that this didn't get more play. The fact that Trump was literally proposing shooting migrants akin to Israel, right? Shooting migrants in the legs, if not outright executing them, trying to enter the U.S., building moats at the border um, and, you know, basically killing them just straight up. This is like the most neo-Nazi shit ever, clearly coming straight from Stephen Miller. And I'll just read this excerpt from the New York Times. The Oval Office meeting this past March began, as so many had, with President Trump fuming about migrants. But this time he had a solution. As White House advisors listened astonished, he ordered them to shut down the entire 2,000-mile border with Mexico by noon the next day. The advisors feared the president's edict would trap American tourists in Mexico, strand children at schools on both sides of the border, and create an economic meltdown in two countries. Yet they also knew how much the president's zeal to stop immigration had sent him lurching for solutions, one more extreme than the next. Privately, the president had often talked about fortifying the border with a water-filled trench stocked with snakes or alligators, prompting aides to seek a cost estimate. He wanted the wall electrified, with spikes on top that could pierce human flesh. After publicly suggesting that soldiers shoot migrants if they threw rocks, the president backed off when his staff told him it would be illegal. But later in a meeting, aides recalled, he suggested that they shoot migrants in the legs to slow them down. That's not allowed either, they told him. Hmm, what does that remind you of? Israel much? And also clearly coming directly from Stephen Miller just feeding him this shit in his ear, being like, yeah, we should just do the most outlandish, barbaric shit possible. And he actually proposed all of this, Robbie, and sought cost estimates for them. It wasn't just him going on some random rant. Like, he literally wanted to know how much it would cost to do this. And he really did want to kill migrants who were just trying to enter the U.S. He really wanted to fucking gun them down dead. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so cartoonish. It's it's almost hard to process that that's real. I mean, I'm 
willing to believe it's real. Um, the entirety of that, including like the moats and alligators thing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, it really is. Uh, but at the same time, like there was actually a story that came out very recently and I'm trying to pull it up right now. I, I can't find it, but basically the story said that there was a change to the rules of engagement officially uh, that sort of went under the radar with Border Patrol that they are now allowed to use lethal force in more circumstances than before. So that actually has now been put through and that barely got any coverage at all, you know, because everyone wants to both sides it and be like, well, Obama used tear gas at the border too. Like this, why are you outraged about this? You know, it's like, okay, 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 you're right. He, he obviously, he did do that. You know, so we get caught up in sort of those those kind of arguments, even when we're talking to like anti-imperialist left people. But then this kind of thing just goes totally under the radar. You know, this this story that I'm talking about and I, I wish I had the thing to pull up. But basically, he can now use lethal force. There is there has been an official policy change from the Obama administration that Border Patrol can now use more lethal force in a more broad circumstance than before with people crossing the border. So that is a change that is different from Obama, even though Obama was heinous on immigration as well. Um, th this is actually worse. Um, there are measurable worse things about what Trump is doing. Uh, so that I just wanted to state that again. Yeah, really good point. I'm glad that you clarified that because there absolutely has been a change in policy. It's not just rhetoric. It's lifting the rules of engagement abroad. It's also changing these policies here at home to make it, you know, much more brutal and that is that is a fact and it doesn't take away from the fact that obama was horrific on immigration absolutely terrible deported more people than any other president combined before him i mean that that's a fact too we can hold both beliefs at the same time and then also analyze how disgusting trump is yeah no i mean it and it's it's just so the argument just gets lost when people frame you know things in these certain ways cuz it's like obama was locking up quote unquote kids in cages too it just got much worse under the trump administration to levels that were like so abhorrent but yet you know things kind of get convoluted it's like those pictures that were floating around in the media a lot of them actually were from the obama era of the deplorable conditions in the, the holding cells, not for children specifically, but just for Im illegal immigrants in general. Um, and, and so that, you know, it's, it's so it's these arguments get really framed really in a silly partisan ways. Um, and it ultimately just becomes ways to deflect away from Trump. And, uh, you know, it's it is a really unusual and interesting newsworthy thing that Stephen Miller, this guy who's putting out all this like barely coded neo-Nazi rhetoric in, in these private emails with people is one of Trump's closest advisors. That is a really fascinating, newsworthy thing. And then James O'Keefe uh, is getting all this credit now for like leaking this ABC news clip that was like not aired. I don't know if you saw this, Abby. And now the right wing mm -hmm. is turning into their own mantra, Epstein didn't kill himself. And it's sort of almost become like this kind of like jokey meme on the right now or sort of in conspiracy, conspiracy circles, which is just unfortunate again, because it's like, I think a lot of regular people, regardless of po political party, can agree that Epstein probably did not kill himself. But yet, once again, 
the right just uses the narrative for themselves. And again, it doesn't go after Trump. It's just all about, you know, how Hillary killed people and all this stuff. And it's like, okay. Trump did fly well, on the Robbie, Lolita Express too, but I guess we're not going to talk Robbie, about that anymore. What? Don't you realize that Epstein only was arrested because of Trump's crackdown on pedos? No, Trump has nothing to do with Epstein. It's really crazy. Wow. Well, here's what's really interesting to me. Even some of the people who would have made fun of us for our discussions about 9-11 or mocked us or questioning 9-11 are now thinking that like the MAGA bomber is like a totally false flag. Like these left people or, or, or they just even go in these other directions where they just actually start to say things that resemble the QAnon narrative. Maybe they don't even know that they're doing it because they're not familiar with the QAnon narrative, but they're almost somehow ending up in a similar place where they're like believing that Trump is taking down the deep state on some level and they're feeding into that. And I find that very odd because like if they knew, you know, if they've been following QAnon like I have, they'd be like, oh, shit, this is basically like almost exactly what the QAnon narrative is. And it's actually like I should probably be more skeptical of this framing but they're not. So I just, I, I don't know. I'm just going off on total tangent. Yeah. It's, no, no, no. It's interesting because the QAnon narrative has like mainstreamed in, rep in Republican circles and stuff. And like you said, Fox News is repeating this shit too. So it's like the people who don't aren't following these conspiracy threads like you are, like just fall prey to the same talking points. And they don't know that it originates from QAnon. It's actually really creepy. And it's really creepy and sad too because some of these same people who are doing that, Abby would have mocked us years ago and characterized us as spreading right-wing conspiracies because they think that it all comes from Alex Jones. But they're literally doing that now because it does come from, like, right-wing media. <laughs> like, QAnon is a right-wing right conspiracy. And I, I, just, I just find it fascinating. It's not the horseshoe theory that people normally talk about, but it is sort of a weird horseshoe in a different sense. And also, just for posterity's sake, anyone who thinks that the deep state is under is actually going is doing a coup right now on Donald Trump. Anyone who believes that, if you mocked anyone for thinking that the deep state had anything to do with 9/11 or anthrax or anything like that, that's just weird to me that you th that you're so willing to accept this paradigm. So, I'm just totally t ranting now. We should probably wrap the episode. Yeah, we have a whole other episode coming just about PG&E and why we think it should be nationalized immediately. It's a public health hazard, an extremely criminal um, history, and it needs to be seized. And Robbie's going to talk about his personal experience being without power for days and just how disgusting um, PG&E is for holding millions of people hostage, um, basically to protect their profits. So we will talk about that in the upcoming episode just about PG&E. I hope you enjoyed this wrap-up of the headlines we just have so much to say about everything going on and it's always fun just because we're brother and sister that we just kind of, you know, tend, tend to go off on a lot of tangents, but it's fun to catch up. It's been a while since we've been able to be on a regular schedule. So it was a good time. I hope you enjoyed listening to us and uh, let us know what you think on the SoundCloud timeline, rate us on iTunes. Um, and yeah, hope you enjoyed listening. We have the 10-year anniversary of Media Roots Radio coming up after January, I think. Um, so in a couple months, we'll be celebrating that with our first official live stream together. So stay tuned. Subscribe to Media Roots Radio or Media Roots, rather, on YouTube so you can be notified when we go live. And um, yeah. Yeah.
Peace out, everyone. Thanks for listening and, and donate on patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Take care. <laughs>